This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 27th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The claims that fly back and forth about Bitcoin from defenders and detractors need to contend with some basic economics. Will Luther is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He's written a great deal about cryptocurrencies. We talked about the false and true claims about crypto earlier this month. Why is Bitcoin not valuable? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a funny place to start, but but a lot of Bitcoin proponents... Um, argue that it's valuable because it's costly to produce. And it is costly to produce, uh, but that isn't why it's valuable. So if you think about, uh, you know, you know, so you might say that uh, uh, going to a doctor, right? Like a doctor is expensive because they spend so much time in school. And so um, it's costly to produce. But, but in fact, that gets the logic exactly the wrong way around, right? Doctors spend all that time in school. They incur those costs because the services they're going to be able to provide are highly valuable. And so it's generally the case that, you know, the cost of producing something uh, on the margin equals its value. But we shouldn't confuse that with the cost causing its value, right? Rather, it's that people are incurring costs. And in the, in the case of Bitcoin, they're incurring the cost of process transactions to engage in this mining that generates new Bitcoin because those bitcoins are valuable. Yeah, so it's um, that's one bad argument from yeah, proponents never, of never bitcoin. reason from cost to value, always from value to cost. Right, because you could pay me a lot to dig a ditch. Yeah, and, and th- that doesn't make the ditch useful <laughs> same or ditch. important yeah. or anything. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the the arguments, and I I gotta say I keep hearing from finance people from you know you watch the financial news. And the the same uh, categories of arguments pop up against Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies generally. There's nothing backing it. Yeah, but that there is some there's some credence to that. You have to take at least That's take true, that claim very right? seriously. There is no backing. There, it's not a redeemable claim. It's just like the dollar. But even more so. When you talk about what's backing the dollar, well, it's a massive government. It's, well, so it's police forces willing to put you in jail under some circumstances. We should, you know, at the risk of being too technical here, we should make a distinction between backing, which means that an item is actually redeemable, and and demand support. And it's true that the U.S. government let's, provides let's a lot of demand support. Let's suss that out just a little bit. Let's support. just suss that out a little bit. What does demand support mean? So the U.S. government uh, has committed to accepting payments in U.S. dollars, and they have committed to making expenditures in U.S. dollars. So if you have to pay your taxes, the U.S. government will take dollars. They're, they're uh, locked into that. Um, if you're going to do some soldiering or if you're going to you know, be a politician or you're going to carry the mail, right, those jobs are going to be, uh, uh, th- those employees are going to be paid in U.S. dollars. And so that creates a a pretty big network of users because the government has provided some demand support. But that's distinct from saying that the dollar is a redeemable claim, which it's not. It's not backed by anything. If you take a dollar to, you know, to uh, to your uh, local bank or to the uh, branch of the Federal Reserve, right, they, they will happily give you change for that dollar, but they're not going to redeem that dollar for some underlying asset. So um, and you're talking about... Um cryptocurrencies and uh, government-issued currencies in a way that I don't think most people are um, at least conceptually 
consider very often, which is I think most people start from the assumption that, well, the dollar is the default or the pound is a default and everything else is new and strange and maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But you seem to be talking about, well, what if there were no default and and what what defines something as money, what de- defines something as a, a, an asset uh, yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, to go too far here. Um, you know, it's government demand support isn't the only thing that the dollar has going for it. It also has a long history of continued acceptance, and that's important. You know, you and I we're we're both in the U.S. at the moment. We can be reasonably confident that the other person is going to accept dollars because we've we've been in this country long enough to know that people in this country accept dollars. And that uh, that focal point, that shared understanding, is something that dollar users enjoy that that Bitcoin users don't enjoy. Which is literally currency. That's right. That's right. Uh, it has currency. It's commonly accepted. Um, so, so we don't want to underplay that. So there's the demand support uh, from the government, but there's also this history of continued acceptance. I'm con- I continue to be a little surprised and, and a little bit incredulous at people who are very smart finance people um, making predictions. Jamie Dimon was uh, one of the one of the key ones that I was really surprised yeah. at um, making sort of a, a standard issue set of claims about Bitcoin. I saw that these people have these amazing careers. Uh, why are they unable to see the either the potential or just the fact that the adoption of Bitcoin as um, mutually agreed, uh, mutual agreed protocol for doing engaging in transactions? Why are they not able to see what the, the value of that is? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, especially today with the you know, now that the price of Bitcoin has declined over the last month uh, so significantly, um, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, Bitcoin uh, is a bubble, certainly was a bubble. Um, and those, those claims are really difficult to, to assess. I mean, if you, if you ask someone who's saying that Bitcoin is a bubble, it's, it's very obvious to them, right? The price went up, the price came down, uh, that must be a bubble. But uh, more technically, Economists define a bubble as a situation where the price of an asset exceeds its fundamental value. And in the case of Bitcoin, we just don't observe the fundamental value. So it's possible that while the price was rising so rapidly that the fundamental value was even greater than that price. And and now that the price has declined, it's possible that the fundamental value is even less than this price decline. But we we don't observe that. And so for evaluating Bitcoin, I don't I don't think that, that that framework of a bubble is is very useful. Instead, we should just think about what the fundamental value of Bitcoin uh, what the fundamental value of Bitcoin is and uh, what factors might cause that fundamental value to change over time. And in uh, as you said before we started recording, the expectations about what cryptocurrencies represent has been dramatically has dramatically changed from day to day. You yeah, know, you that's have, huge. Some countries have banned it. Some countries have said, oh, we'll accept it." Some countries take a sort of benign neglect approach to it. Some credit card companies have said, "No, we're not going to allow you to make purchases uh, in these assets with our uh, products." And so it, 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 right. it's rapidly right. changed. 
Yeah. So if you're thinking about the fundamental value of Bitcoin, you're you're thinking about using it to move wealth from one place to another. And how valuable that is depends on how many people are in that network. And so folks in the Bitcoin space are constantly evaluating the potential network size. If we get some new news that uh, suggests that this network is going to be bigger than we expected, then the price today goes up to reflect that because Bitcoin is suddenly more valuable. If, on the other hand, we get some news that you know China is going to ban Bitcoin exchanges or the IRS has subpoenaed Coinbase and um, you know that the regulatory environment is, say, less favorable than than we uh, thought before. Then we our expectations of that future network size decrease, and the price of Bitcoin falls to reflect that. Again, as as we were saying earlier, we don't have this this big uh, support for Bitcoin like the dollar has. Right? We don't have a a government that's credibly ex- uh, committed to accepting it. We don't have this uh, core group of users that refuse to use anything else in the way that the the dollar has uh, a government support. And so we're you know anyone uh, could reasonably leave the network of users at any time and you know, on the other hand, anyone could join the network of users at any time. So there's just a lot of potential for fluctuation there that more traditional currencies just don't have. So in, in a, some sense, it has the same problem that places like Facebook and MySpace and Twitter have, which is, you know, we, the network is the thing. That's right. That's right. I mean, uh, this is this is true for, for all monies, right? Uh, a medium of exchange is only useful if someone else is going to accept it. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, it, it doesn't function well as a medium of exchange. And so it, uh, all monies have this network property. But uh, at least with government-issued monies, there's a, a reasonable belief that uh, some of that network is pretty solid. Um, I mean, government monies have, an, have other problems, like how are they going to manage the supply? And in many cases around the world, the answer is terribly. Um, but uh, but they have this this demand support thing going for them, um, and and Bitcoin doesn't have that. So uh, can you project out even six months or a year in terms of what the regulatory environment will look like? I spoke with Jerry Brito of of Coin Center not that long ago, and he said, you know, a lot of the when pe- when people talk about regulating Bitcoin they or c- cryptocurrencies more broadly, they don't seem to understand what they're talking about. Uh, I'm I may be getting his his sentiments wrong, but uh, because there's no Mr. Bitcoin, there's no Bitcoin <laughs> LLC that you can go uh, and shake down for compliance or something. But there are lots of people who depend on that network that uh, may or may not be breaking laws that already exist. Yeah, I think that um, you know the folks at Coin Center are doing excellent work on this uh, on on this margin. Uh, just getting states, for example, to clarify what their, uh, you know, w- the, the laws that are already on the books, you know, which of those laws uh, apply to, to Bitcoin, um, how will those laws be interpreted in the context of Bitcoin, and getting, you know, new specific rules written for Bitcoin that, that clarify that with, without uh, question. Have so, any states done that? Yes, yes. Um, not as many as perhaps we would hope. Um, I, I don't know the, the tally offhand, but it's you know something in the neighborhood of six to nine states have, uh, have clarified that, uh, that uh, regulatory framework. 
um, to some degree or another. Not all, not all of them have done so in a way that, uh, you know, really um, supports the, the currency. Um, but, uh, but at least they've taken the step to, you know, if it's bad regulation, at least it's clearly bad as opposed to ambiguously bad. Um, so there's something to be said for that, too. Will Luther is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.